0: Man yeah, a yeah, yeah, Man a man, yeah, we talking. Man a man, they can't got me. Man a man, they don't wanna see us. Man a man, Me, that's why I want it so bad Must be the hustler in me that keep my foot on the gas When you got it from nothing, then hard times ain't so bad Just know I'm coming for everything that they said I couldn't have I put my life inside it, yeah, I kept it silent Yeah, I played the field, that's how I feel about it We put numbers on the board, we always up the score Yeah, we stuck to the planet, never ran Now they can't man, see man Yeah, we talking, man, a oh man They can't guard me. Man to man, they don't wanna see us. Man to man, they don't know how to beat us. Man to man.
1: Yo, what's going on man we back at it again um one half of the man and man pod i'm ab got my co-host d butt yes sir man and today and today we are welcome um with a very very special guest um a man of many titles um what 17 18 years at san diego tribune sports illustrated um nfl network um a member of the hall of fame, um, committee and, but one of the, the, the most important is a
2: Howard university,
1: alum, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: Jim Trotter, man. Appreciate you for, for joining us.
2: No, man. I'm honored to be on, man. It's one of the best podcasts going. So, and you know how I feel about YouTube. So to be given an invite, I'm humbled. I'm honored, man. So hopefully I do it justice. <sighs> Nah, I nah. appreciate
3: you jump jumping jump on the show with us, man. We have obviously a lot of players on, but I think the people, I think they should. Uh, they need to see, you know, the other sides of the game. Obviously, the media aspect, being a writer, being a reporter, there's so many things that you see, obviously, that you do report on and that you don't. So your, um, your PLV is important for not only us to hear and to understand, but, you know, the listeners, the fans, man. So I'm excited to get into a lot of stuff with you today.
2: Yeah, let's do it
3: yeah man let's just jump from the start, man let's just talk about your background,
1: you know um your upbringing um your household, and eventually man what 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 kind of led you um to this path to your passion as far as reporting and um being able
2: to tell stories yeah man my my story is not that different from a lot of folks I grew up in northern California I was born in San francisco um you know single parent household and we didn't have much money, so we were kind of rent hopping. What seemed like month to month, but it was more year to year. So, never really established um, serious roots. But what it did, you know, is it 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 instilled something in me that I wanted, that I knew coming up, I wanted more. I wanted more than that. You know, there's there's a humbling experience as a young man, as a child, when you go in the store and you're taking you know, what was in food stamps. I know they have a different name for it now, but always felt back then that, you know, folks kind of looked at at you funny, looked at you differently when you did something like that. And so always had this thing in my mind from a very young age that I wanted to be successful, that I wanted to be able to carry, you know, my weight, wanted to have a family, be a family man, um, be there for my wife, my kids, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, it's something that's just has never left me so left me I should say so um just came up through that went to high school at a predominantly white high school and my senior year our black student union there in California they have a state convention and that year the um convention was down on the UCLA campus and neither of my parents graduated college, high school I should say so college was never really a big discussion in the house mm-hmm. and so we're at this uh, BSU state convention and one of the forums was historically black colleges and universities, which I'm going to be honest, I had never heard of because again, my parents hadn't graduated high school. So college wasn't talking about black. So I go to this forum and one of the panelists was from Howard. And as I'm listening to the panelists speak, I'm like, man, I want to be a part of that. And so um, immediately it was in the spring, I applied to Howard. I got accepted. I didn't have the money to go. So I spent two years. Uh, I said, I'll, I'll take two years to build up my GEs and then I'll transfer. And the, the positive about that is while I was doing that at Cal State Hayward, which is now Cal State East Bay, um, I met the person who was now my wife. So it was a positive. You know, they always say God has a plan. Yep. You know, and, um, and I stayed there for two years, went to Howard and I knew Right when I got to college, I knew I wanted to get into sports writing because, like many of us, you go high school and you play football and all that kind of stuff. But I'm real with myself about my strengths and my weaknesses. And I knew I was never going to be good enough to play in the NFL. So when some of these small colleges came, it was like, you know what? I could go do it. But I'm more focused on now trying to prepare myself for a life, a successful Mm -hmm. life. And um, so I didn't play but I figured out one way to stay close to the game was by being a sports writer. And so that was my focus from the time that I left high school until today. And when I got to Howard, as you know, um, maybe one of the guys there was Ed Hill, the sports information director. Yeah. And one of the great things about it is he would take students in and treat you as if you were his assistant. So you got to write, you got to work games, you got to do all that. You got some practical experience. Yeah. For me, that was invaluable, and it set the table for really where I am today, going from Howard to um, starting out the Muskegon Chronicle, then to the Morning News Tribune of Tacoma, then the San Diego Union Tribune, where I thought I was going to retire after 18 years before Sports Illustrated came calling, and then the ESPN and now at NFL Network. So it's just been been sort of a progression, and, you know, Each step of the way, you you learn more about yourself. And ultimately, you get to a point where I'm at now where you really learn what your purpose is. You start asking as you get older, you start asking yourself questions about what's my purpose in this business. You know, when you're young, you're trying to make your way. You're trying to establish your name, all that kind of stuff. And once you do that, at least for me, the question became, what's my purpose? And really, in 2016, when Colin first took that knee, and I was at ESPN. I'll never forget this moment. I know I'm rambling here, but I'll never forget this moment where the story comes out that he's demonstrating against um, police brutality. And I live in San Diego. The Chargers, I'm sorry, the, the 49ers last preseason game following the, the breaking of that story by Steve Weiss was that the 49ers were playing their final preseason game in San Diego on military appreciation night. Mm-hmm. All right. So they have me cover the game. And so before the game I remember I'm doing a live shot for Sports Center and the sports anchor at that time starts to frame the question in the way of Colin being disrespectful to the media and the flag and all this other kind of stuff and it was literally in that moment while I'm on air listening to the framing of the question where I said to myself you got one or two ways to go here you can either let this person frame this wrongly yeah or You can say, no, that's not what's happening here and and reshape the narrative. And I decided in that moment, I'm not going to let him frame this wrongly. It's too important. And from that moment forward, my purpose has kind of been, I realized in this business and however many years I have left is to number one, speak up for those who don't have a voice to give them a voice and, and two to address some of the inequities that, that go on in our business and in our game. That others might not be addressing, and lastly, mm-hmm. it was to try as best I can to humanize these players and show them to be more than just football players. You know, we have that whole shut up and dribble thing, um, but as you guys know, and as you guys are proving, you know, athletes are about a lot more than just the game that they play. And so, really, those were kind of became kind of the the the, the pillars of what I'm trying to do again, as I go forward and how, however many years I have left in the business. Yeah, media.
3: Media is, is powerful, man, and, and obviously controlling and shaping narratives. And when you're, I guess, going against what everybody's trying, because we were, we were both in the league at that time, and I remember how questions would be framed, you know, to me about it. And I'd be like, come on, man. Every time somebody puts a mic in front of Collins' face, he says the same things on what he's uh, protesting against. So the 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 message isn't getting screwed up, is everybody changing it. But um I want to go back a little bit um to them high school decks. You kind of glossed over the sports part. I got to know what sports you played at <laughs> high school first, kind of what you learned from the sports you played, and then what went into that decision moving and not moving, but going so far away from you know home and, and yeah. going across the country uh to go to Howard.
2: Yeah, it was for me. I played football um and ran track and played a little baseball. But again, I was never great at anything. I mm-hmm. was I was good. I was decent. But um I I knew I knew again, I knew my strengths and weaknesses. One thing I always try and be real with myself about. Even even now as a journalist, when I get critiqued, my thing is never to say when someone critiques me, let's say negatively, to right off the bat say, oh, they they're just hating or they're this or they're mm-hmm. that my first response is, okay, is there anything that they are saying in there that is actually true, that I can take and learn from? And, and, and if there is, then I try and take from that and learn from it. And if some stuff is in there that ain't right, that I know ain't right and whatever, I just push that to the side. So for me in high school when I was playing, um, I love the game. I love the camaraderie. I love the fact how sports can bring it, – it truly can bring everyone together, you know, from yes. different – um, socioeconomic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, all that kind of stuff where you come together for a common goal. I think that's so powerful. Um, and, and yet again, I knew I was never going to be good enough to be in you guys' shoes and, and, play in the NFL. So I wanted to find a way to just stay close to the game in some sort of way. And I wanted to write when I was in high school, but I couldn't because of the conflict of interest. You can't be writing about your teammates, and <laughs> fact. <laughs> fact, right. So it was like I couldn't do it then. And so the minute I got out of high school right away, um, my focus was on becoming a sports writer. And everything that I did from that point forward was um was focused on that.
1: And uh, do kind of touched on it um and, and his latter part of the question, but going from Northern California yeah. across the country to Howard University, like how was that and like you said, you attended a predominantly white high school. Yeah. Going to an HBCU yeah. was there a culture shock there, or you know how was your how was your first experience? And and at the end of the day, like how did your experience at Howard University shape you as a man and as a writer?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm kind of laughing because I had never been on a plane before I went to Howard. You know, that's like I said, we we didn't have much money, yeah. so that wasn't the way that we traveled or anything. Any trips that we took were by car. You know, we mm-hmm. sit in the back seat on long trip. Um, so I had never been on a plane and then I'll never forget this. I get to, I land in DC <clears throat> and this taxi, you know, picks me up and all of a sudden the conversation becomes about go-go music. Yeah. Well, I'm out in Northern California. We have never heard of go-go music. <laughs> and so, you know, and I could tell right away, he's kind of looking at me sideways, like, you don't know what this is and then and whatnot, whatnot. And I'm like, damn, you know, already I'm off to a bad start here, you know? So I learned about go-go music real quick. Yeah. And, um, but for me, stepping on the campus at Howard, man, uh, and, and I don't want to make this sound so dramatic or whatnot, but it was life-changing, you know, to be around people who look like you, um, who share some of the same experiences that you do, and who are motivated to be successful. Because we know out in the broader um, culture, or society, the narratives they put out about Black folk. And so to be around folks who are young, beautiful, um, intelligent, striving for greatness, you know, it, it was huge for me. And to sit in a classroom where I felt like people were invested in me and I was not just a number, that they actually cared about whether or not I succeeded, man, I'm not here today without that, you know? So um, it was life-changing for me. It was, it was, I owe everything to him. and That's why, you know, behind me, I got, you know, the helmet and, and this, that, and I always try and rep my university to, to let folks who might not be aware of HBCUs or Howard or whatever to, to do a little research, understand their place in, in history, and and how they can impact them um it's it's it, i'm i'm telling you man it's just it's a it's hard to put in the words that feeling when you come from again a predominantly white high school and you step on and literally almost all black college i know it has changed now with federal funding and whatnot and we're seeing more integration on on hbcu campuses mm-hmm. but to step in a place where it is about your culture and your people and and striving for greatness it doesn't get better than that, man. Yeah, 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 man. I got to be a special.
3: I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. I'm jealous, man. Obviously, growing up, growing up in South Florida, it's a melting pot, you know. A lot, and the younger I was, you know, the more uh, black people I was around. Then high school was a little more diverse, and then went to college, and it was the complete opposite for me. Yeah. You know, that was uh, I'm not only am I going to, a, you know, a predominantly white institution but I was going to Connecticut stores, Connecticut, coming from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So outside of the athletic program, you know, once you got past those, you know, kind of basic classes, man, it was, I was probably one of maybe two, if that black men in these classes. So that that was a completely uh, different, I think it helped in some ways it helped me, uh, you know, be able to know how to deal with white people and, and talk to, and know, know even their different experiences. And then you kind of realize, okay, You know it's two different Americas. Yeah. But when you really have those conversations and backgrounds and things, like, oh wow, this is this is really different. So it was eye-opening from that standpoint. Um, but definitely envious. I didn't get that that HBCU experience that I hear about all the time from uh from A B. Don't let a month go
2: by. Wait, A.B. didn't get to see it because obviously he was playing, but like halftime, you know, when you got the Battle of the Bands and whatnot, it was just so different from anything I had ever experienced. And yeah. you just, you 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 feel it in you. You know, I can't even tell you, I can't even explain for people it's something you have to experience, but you feel it, you know, internally in, your, in every fiber in you. When you sit there and you see the bands battling, and, and, and we all know, it, at least at Howard, it was, it was, it wasn't even about the football games, man. People came there for the band, you know, yeah, and the shows at halftime. And no disrespect, to AB, but he knows. I you know. get it. I mean, that's what it was. That's what it
1: was. There's no hate, and you know, sometimes I'm I'm in there in the locker room at halftime, jealous because I, I I can't see the the the, the one hundred or whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? So it was just part of it. But like you said, it was it was the culture, man, and that. And just like you said, Jim, man, I, I, I appreciate it. I love it to this day.
2: So, yeah. When you say, when you can say, like I graduated in 86, when you can say now however many years later that, you know, we're talking decades, that you would do it all over again and you wouldn't change anything, I mean, that tells you what, what it was like and what it was about, you know. And so I tried to get my daughters to go, but they didn't want to leave, you know, the state. They wanted to stay you know, home close to home. Yeah. Um, because it, it's just I, I couldn't put into words to them what it what it really means and how it impacts you. So I when I couldn't get them to go to Howard, then I tried Spelman. You know, I was trying to get them yeah. down to Spelman and um, it's just it's it's just when you talk about <clears throat> reinforcing what it means to be a black person in America and your self-worth and that rich culture that you come from you know, and that your people come from and the things that they have experienced and and how that impacts you going forward in terms of what it means for you to to lay a new foundation for those who are coming behind you. And that's why even in this business now, as I go forward, man, when when young blacks come and want to talk to me about the business and whatnot, I try and give them all I can and all the time that I have. Cause that's what it's about. You're supposed to reach back and bring along that next generation, and and hopefully they learn from you and it gets better. Each each you know your building blocks. Um, but it man, it was it was just special. You know, it really yeah. was.
3: I want to ask you who who uh, because we always and obviously me and AB and whoever whatever players we talk to, we always we kind of ask them. You know, who were those? I guess OGs in the locker room or off the field, off the you know court or whatever who helped bring you along the way, who helped show your role? Who was that mentor? Uh, did you have someone in your life or, or multiple people, you know, in the writing space and the reporting space that helped you along the way early on?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the people we mentioned earlier was Ed Hill, you know, yep. um, Howard's sports information director. He was really big for me in terms of giving me an opportunity to, to do things and really talking to me about the business, having been in it before, about what I could expect out in the quote unquote real world. Um, The person who got me into sports writing truly and made me believe that it was possible was Ralph Wiley, the late Ralph Wiley. And um, I never knew him, I never met him. But for me as a young black, to see a black man on television, you know, going from the Oakland newspaper to Sports Illustrated, to being on Sports Reporter back in the day and those sorts of things, to see a black man up there giving his point of view unapologetically it was mm-hmm. like, wow, you know, and, and people have to understand this is before the internet. So it wasn't like I could just go read Ralph Wiley anytime I wanted or see him anytime, or or he was easily accessible in yeah. terms of the content. But to see him in those moments was so powerful. It was like, man, you can do this. And then as I'm growing up in the Bay Area and I'm reading the San Francisco Chronicle and I'm reading about the warriors and whatnot, and then to realize that the writer at that time um, was Ron Thomas who at the time I didn't know, but he's a black man who now teaches mm-hmm. at Morehouse, And and it was like, man, there's more affirmation that I can do this, that, that I can make it. The sad part is, for me at least, coming up through the ranks in this, every place I've worked, only once, um, you know, in terms of newspapers, did I have another black in the sports department as a writer, you know, mm. when I was in Tacoma um, at the Morning News Tribune, Sheldon Spencer was there. And and when I was in San Diego, they tell me I was the first black ever um, in the sports department in terms of writer. And I mean, I'm there 18 years and there was never another one with me during mm. that time. So it's kind of a lonely place in this yeah. business. And then obviously you get, you know, the Sports Illustrated and, and there are more. And obviously at ESPN now there were more, and then at NFL Network now there's you know Steve Weiss and Jeffrey Chadia and I, um, but it can be a lonely place, and so you've got to be, you've got to be um, mentally strong. And um, I'll say this to you: one of the reasons that I'm able to focus on the things that I focus on now is because I feel that I've earned that right. You know, throughout the years I paid my dues, mm-hmm. I've earned my credibility. And now I can speak on things that maybe when I was younger, it's not that I didn't feel confident about it, but maybe mm-hmm. I felt alone, that I didn't have sort of a support system to speak on certain things. And so, for instance, one of my focuses now, besides dealing with you know diversity, equity and inclusion within the NFL, is also within our media um, ranks. So, for instance, in the Hall of Fame, um, there's a writing writer award and it used yeah. to be called the McCann Award. And last year, they changed it to the Bill Nunn Jr. Award. And and everyone who follows football knows Bill Nunn Jr. was like the first Black executive in the NFL with the Steelers, personnel guy, was a trailblazer, and was largely responsible in many ways for a Steelers dynasty of the 70s in terms of bringing in talent from HBCUs. Well, they renamed the award after Bill this year, and yet somebody didn't think long or hard about this. (laughs) The irony of it is that a Black person has never won that award. And so to name an award, Mm a man who fought for, you know, diversity and equality and whatnot, and yet never have a Black win that award, to me, it's, I don't want to go so far as to say it's offensive, but it's definitely disrespectful. And so I ask people, how is it that Ralph Wiley has never won that award? How is it that that, um, Brian Burwell never won that award? How is it that Um, Bill Roden has never won that award. How is it that Jared Bell has never won that award? What are we we saying here that we have this award which recognizes supposedly the lifetime contributions of people who cover the NFL and there is not one black person whose name is on that award? I I find that to be a travesty. And so going forward, that is one of the things I'm going to be speaking on, even though it may rankle some of my my colleagues who happen to be white, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. You have to understand to us, representation matters. Yeah. And for the next little kid who's coming along, who who sees that and walks through the Hall of Fame and sees that award, he needs to see or he or she needs to see a Ralph Wiley yeah. or, or a Jared Bell or a Bill Roden or Brian Burwell, mm-hmm. you know, because that allows them to dream and say, you know what, man, if, if he can be here or she can be here, I can be here. You know, yeah. that's just how I feel about it.
1: Hey, you 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 touched on a lot right there, right? So one thing that I wanna I wanna touch on, and um, and it, it hit social media tough and uh, really hard. And it was one of them things like you just said, you know, you, you you earned your stripes in this business. And you know, at this point you can say things unapologetically and whatever, but you're gonna put the put the word out how it needs to be put out. And uh recently during Super Bowl, um Uh, i forgot what it was but you know had roger goodell there and you got up and you had some some real words for him just as far Mm -hmm. as you know as the nfl we talk about um diversity we talk about inclusion we talk about um xyz but the numbers don't show um just speak on that and and obviously you know you said it at this point this is what this is this is like your calling as far as um being able to speak for the uh for the speakers you know what i'm saying for the people who, who don't have that voice um to just speak on that a little bit and, and just were you were you setting up were you setting up for that um or was it just something that came to your heart at that at that moment in time no
2: it, it had been on my heart for a while because here's the thing we have seen over the last five years whatever the, the numbers roll back in terms of black head coaches and for a period there even among general managers we had seen the numbers in terms of diversity roll back with general managers and so when you I'll never forget this. I'm in Indianapolis at the combine one year and I go upstairs, as you guys know, in the city center, third floor, I'm going to go get something to eat real quick. And there's like a half dozen black coaches that I know who were hanging out, sitting there talking. And, and I'm just going to walk by and go get my food. And they were like, Jim, come here, come here, come here. And they called me over and they said, you got to do something about this. I said, about what? Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, the lack of black coaches head coaches. And I said, well, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm doing all I can. What are you guys doing? You know, um, you guys won't speak up on it. And then they're like, well, we can't. You know, if we do, then we're not going to climb that ladder. We're going to be ostracized. And and I knew that to be true. And and so I started thinking about it more. And one of the people who was sitting there was the late Daryl Drake, longtime wide receiver coach, Mm -hmm. Cardinal Steelers, everywhere else. And and so Daryl says to me, um, I'll speak on it. And and he said, I'm at the end. He said, so I don't have anything to lose, I'll speak on it. And so I said, look coach, I said, do this. Let me give you a few weeks and you think about it. And if you really wanna speak on it, I said, I'll write about it. And so I gave him a few weeks and I called him and he said, yeah, he goes, I'll say something on it. And so I ended up writing a story there. And it was from that point forward that um, it became a big focus for me um, because here's the thing that people don't understand They think it's just numbers or that we're after, you know, something that maybe we shouldn't have or whatever their thoughts are. And they always hear this crap about you should be able to hire the best person, period, regardless of race and this and the Mm -hmm. other. I say to them, I agree with you 100 percent on that.
3: 100 percent.
2: But the best people are not being hired. Mm -hmm. And so when Brian Flores files his lawsuit, I remember I called Clarence Shellman long-time running back coach with um, the Seahawks, the, the Cowboys, and the Chargers. And you coached Emmett Smith. you coached LaDainian Tomlinson. He was an offensive coordinator with the Chargers um, five years when North Turner was there. They went to the playoffs three times. He didn't call plays, but he ran all the offensive meetings. He designed the run game, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, Coach, what do you think about Brian Flores' lawsuit? And he said to me, that's the reason I got out of the game and i said we'll speak on that and he said he said jim he said um it is emasculating and that's his word he said it is emasculating and it is devastating that you can spend all of your adult life doing everything to prepare yourself to reach the highest levels of this game yeah. and then when you get to that point you are not given an opportunity to to chase your dream but yet yeah. people who are younger who are not as qualified or who have a certain name um, are given those opportunities. He said it is emasculating, it is is devastating. He said, ultimately what it came to was that he realized what the NFL was about. He saved his money and he left on his own terms. And he said that he could not look himself in the mirror and be part of a system um, that is so systemically racist. And he said he understands other coaches can't do that financially, but he was able to. And he has been out a decade. Excuse me. And the thing that stuck with me is that he said, even after a decade, it still stays with you. And so when we hear the NFL talk about the importance of mental health and taking care of your mental health, I don't think they fully understand how damaging and how traumatic it is that when Blacks are being discriminated against in this hiring process, what that does to their mental health Mm -hmm. and how long that stays with them. And so, again, my focus is every opportunity I get, I'm going to shine a light on this because it's not right. And people need to understand how this is impacting these men. Yeah. So obviously you don't get a lot of access to Roger, but we all know that the one time that you do is at the Super Bowl. So I said, okay, if I, we, when Steve and I were doing our podcast, we went to the NFL three different times to try and get Roger Goodell on our, on our podcast. First yeah. time was after he did that sit down with Emmanuel Acho, and I remember watching it, saying, "The only person uncomfortable in this conversation is me. <laughs> this black man is uncomfortable with this conversation. <laughs> He's not yeah. being asked questions that he needs to be asked." Yeah. But we went to um, we went to the NFL and asked to have him on our podcast. It goes nowhere. We get halfway through the season. We go back. We get nowhere. We do it one final time. We get nowhere. So I said, fine, we've gone through the steps of trying to have him on to have a real conversation about it. So this is my opportunity to ask him a question. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I wanna frame it? Because you know he's gonna wiggle his way out of it. That's just the way Mm -hmm. he's prepped for that. So I'm like, okay, I know the ground rules going in, but how can I be as pointed and as direct as possible to say, I need you to, to really understand what I'm saying here. And so I said, okay, when I, when I read the league's initial response to Brian Forrest's lawsuit and they said diversity, equity, and inclusion are core principles in the NFL. And I said, that's my opening because that is straight up bullshit. Right. I mean, it's bullshit because the numbers don't reflect it. And so I wanted to say to him, if that is what the league is saying, let's provide some context before I ask you what I want to ask you about that. And so then we get into the number of of, um, Black head coaches, number of Black teams, and how in the history of this league, really um, discrimination has been a problem as it relates to head coaches. Knowing that this league has been around for over a hundred years, 24 of the 32 teams in the NFL, that's three quarters of the teams, have had one Black head coach, or none in its history, in their histories, 13 franchises, which is nearly half of the league, have never had a black head coach. But you're going to sit here and tell me that diversity, equity, and inclusion are core principles in the NFL. So then I said, well, wait a minute. And again, this is me formulating all this in my mind. And I'm asking myself, how is he going to respond to this? And I know what he's going to say. He's going to say that's on the owners. The league doesn't do the hiring for teams. Owners do. And we know the owners aren't there to answer the question. So I said, no, 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 no. I need to put this directly at his shoes then if that's what he's going to do. So I looked at the league office of the top 11 executives at the NFL. Only two blacks are among those 11. When I look at at, um, the NFL media group where I work and where we cover a player population that is between 70 and 80 percent black. Yeah there is not one black person at the senior management level in the newsroom who is at the table when decisions are being made about how these men are going to be covered. So while Roger can put the onus on the owners as it relates to head coaches, GMs, club presidents, the league office and the NFL media group fall under his umbrella. So now you can't sit there and say that diversity, equity and inclusion are core principles and blame the owners for the, for the lack of those things. And now we look at what you control and the numbers are no better. And in yeah, fact, in mm-hmm. some cases, they are worse. Worse, and, yeah. That's why I just said, you know what? Ultimately, the question here then is, what do you and the owners have against hiring black people at the highest levels of the NFL in decision-making positions, period? And, and that's how the question came up.
1: No, nah, I, I commend uh-huh. you. I commend you, man, because it was definitely something that needed to be asked um, right. to, the, to the head guy. So, again, man, I, I commend you for that and obviously all the great you work know, that you I do. Man. The, yeah. biggest,
2: the biggest disappointment from all of that is that I haven't heard from him. So you would think since then, let's have he a conversation.
1: Reach, he would have reached out to you and said, hey, Jim, let me expand yeah. on this. That, yeah. and nothing. Not,
3: uh, un- un- unfortunately, that's not even shocking to me. Cause I, I feel like you know we get, and obviously you you've you've been here a lot longer than I have, and we get a lot of lip service, we get a lot of slogans, we get a lot of, and the questions you ask, um, and people even the race Norman thing, like we just oh. kind of talked about that for a day, swept that under the rug, like that should have been one of the biggest issues ever to come up as far as the stain on the NFL and the shield and everything that they talk about. Um, so it's not shocking, but um, I I, I love that you that you definitely brought that put his feet to the fire in a sense and brought that question to him because, you know, people love to talk about the field and the players. And and that's really the only place where you really earn your – you got to earn your spot. There is no – like everybody's keeping track. Everybody's keeping tabs from the the moment we leave high school, basically. So you can't finesse that. But as soon as you get off that field, you get to the coaches, you get to the scouts, you get to the entire ecosystem around these sports, the media spaces – the networks, they all get wider and wider, wider the higher you go up. And this is across, you know, the country. This is not even just in sports, this Absolutely. is a corporations, period. So um it definitely needs to be a fix. You know, part of that is you know us coming together too and you know, putting our money together and building our own in a sense. But while we're here continuing to build this one, we need more representation, you know, at the highest point. So like like A yeah. B said, man, appreciate the work that you're that you're doing on the forefront of that.
2: No, yeah. I appreciate it. But the the, the thing that, that gets me, too, is we have to be very careful here about that we don't fall for the old okey-doke. Because what we heard in that press conference, too, is Roger talking about that they would like to have a Black owner, right? Mm-hmm. A Black owner, you know? Um, but let's just say there's one. And as I have said, I don't just want a Black owner. I want a Black owner who is socially conscious and who represents the views of this community. Because yeah. I don't need a guy in there or a woman in there who is on board with everything that these other owners are talking about or doing. As we like to say, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Yeah. So, <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: So, I, I mean, I want someone in there who is speaking up on behalf of the issues that, that, that represent our community. And if we don't have that, I don't care if you have a, a black person in there. You know, yeah.
3: And I, 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 I'm, I'm right there with you. And unfortunately, the spot that we're in, if you are a black billionaire, it's most likely, you know, you got there. A part of you getting there is, you know, making white people feel very comfortable and been in those rooms. And It's not too many of us around here um, that are that art in that space honestly and when and i've sat at the table you know during the uh the 2017 after the 2016 when Colin started the protest 2017 when the president at the time made those statements and then that's when a lot more people got on board with the pro- uh, protest at least for a couple weeks uh, i think that kind of radicalized more players in a sense because he kind of drew a line in the sand and then that you know we were sitting at the table literally with these owners and just listening to them talk and, and and it it was it was different. I'm like, okay, these, these dudes don't give a they don't care don't Like they 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 pretended listening. We know they're only here to find a way to get us off a of knee. And, and so much so, one of the owners actually said out of his mouth to a player that was there, "Hey, um, you 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 actually had they did they did they did thorough research on all of us. They actually when they left, it was a packet that had all of our i named basically a bio, a picture, and then all of the times that we spoke out, whether it's regarding the military, whether it's regarding social justice, like literally quotes. So they had their research on us, and he actually pointed to one of the players, was like, hey, man, we need to put, we need, literal words, we need to put a Band-Aid on this situation. We need a face, obviously you're black, there was a couple white players there as well. You're black. Your cousin was actually killed by a police officer. So we need you to kind of be on the forefront. So I'm like, that really... Open my eyes, like right in my face, like these dudes don't really—they you know, all they care about is the bottom line, how that's they look good. on the front end, and it—and it—and it, it was wild to see. So that's why I've kind of—I don't want to say lost hope as far as getting equity and all these things that we want in this league, but it—you it, know—it—it's it's gonna happen, man. It's disappointing, man.
2: I'm—you know—I'm—I'm I'm pro, but I'm a little uh, man let me turn this around on you YouTube for a second because I get this question all the time. So what role does the player play in all of this? You know, like when we talk about Brian Flores' lawsuit or we talk about the lack of blacks as head coaches or GMs, the players have a tremendous amount of power, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. So what role do the players play in change and making change? I've so-
3: got, I, Go ahead, B. I'll go
1: after nah, that. I'll go ahead. So I, I like to make a, um, you know, so if you look at the NBA, right, and, you know, I feel as though NBA is way ahead of the NFL, right, when it comes to some of these um, situations, right, and you look at the NBA and, you know, their top players, LeBron, Chris Paul, um, you know, they, they step up into the forefront and, and, and say X, Y, and Z. On our front, we do have um, black guys, black players that are at that level. But for the majority, when you have these quarterbacks at that time, you know you got to think about a Drew Brees, a Payne, a Tom Brady. Those guys not going to step up and and voice their opinion. So what to so what you're saying as far as players, we do we do have a lot of power. But the conversations, even when we when they were in the locker room, it's like um. And we and you know because i was there with, with the college situation and we used to tell the guys i like, look if you don't know what to say don't say nothing obviously we know that <laughs> you're you with the calls but when you put this 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 microphone in front of your face and them them cameras in front of you you might get shook up you might say something that you didn't really mean to say or they might ask you something and you might get stuck so again but the for the veteran guys it's like yo we're gonna speak up we gonna we gonna we're gonna speak speak our piece where we stand and how we feel um but again you have the younger players who like on that first year contract I'm like oh this is how I eat. like you know I, yeah I, that that I can't and and who am I to say right. forget that like you know what I'm saying yeah, so right. again um obviously you know it's the power in numbers and we do have but but again in you you always gonna have some folks that like, look, man. I, I'm ride with y'all, but man, I got I got so and so deal and so and so deal, and and I know we had a meeting in, in in Arizona, and I voiced that opinion, right? I'm like, look, like I, I'm I'm with the six. Let's let's do X Y and Z, and you know it was some players that was like, man, I'm with it. You know it was some some other players that was like, man, I don't think that's the right thing to do X Y Z. I'm like, oh, that's your opinion but this is why we're at where we at because some of the biggest names right that look like us are not willing That's to right. stand, stand across other owners and until yeah. so so uh, honestly like don't don't get me wrong uh, uh, Antoine antoine darius butler yeah but when you would have if, if you would have some of the, the biggest names that look like us and say, man, nah, this is what we're doing. I think it would change the the, the the whole narrative and the whole situation.
3: That would that would definitely help if because you know it's basically the, the the big dogs essentially have to protect everyone else that is, right. that are expendable, right? Yeah. So um, when uh, I think they were some players that got together and did a commercial, which basically forced Goodell's hand. Yeah. to directly apologize to Colin cuz they were doing a lot of lip service stuff but dancing around the Colin Kaepernick thing and it was like Mahomes I right. watching at the time O'Dell like like big big names where it was like all right we can't ignore when Patrick Mahomes get up there so to create the real change as far as on the player level you definitely need the big the top dogs and like you said a lot of them don't want to put their neck out there regardless of where they are they could be a year player in year 11 you know, making X amount twenty five million dollars a year, but it's like you know they got their brands they want to protect. They don't want to lose sponsors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part of it. But on the on the bigger s- scheme of things, um, and there are there is some responsibility on players, but in reality, I don't think that the the big change is going to come from the player level. If we like the players, and it's not to excuse you know responsibility and all that, but that's that's the labor. Like, this is the labor. These, these are skilled athletes, you know. And, they, and a lot of these athletes have put everything into being that. Like that. Like you said, you knew in high school, like, all right, I'm probably not going to go on and play professionally. But, like, if a guy of 15, they knew, like, hey, this is what I'm going to do, that's where they put their intention, Their surroundings, they may not have been educated on a lot of these things. So those guys are going to basically go and play where the best situation suits them. And as a player, you got a very small window. And and A.B. was very fortunate. I mean, something you can only dream of playing 14 years as a defensive back. I got very fortunate playing nine years. A lot of these guys come in, you got a short window. So, reality, these people ain't about to ruffle nobody's feathers. Like, you know, people not going to turn down a $5 raise to go work somewhere else that they may feel a little more uncomfortable with how the situation is there. So, you're not going to – I'm not going to realistically look at a 24-year-old and say, yeah, you know, put your – you know, 850000 on the line where you may not ever get another opportunity. So I think if it's a situation where there is, and I, I always go back to this, because like I said, maybe I'm just pessimistic at this point, but where there is another league, where there is somewhere else that at least creates another place for these players to go. And it's kind of something similar on the HBCU level. People always say the players, if all the black players just leave high school and go to HBCUs, that'll change the... But yeah, these people, you're not going... Ask eighteen. You can't ask eighteen-year-old like Travis Hunter when he did it. But a lot of these guys, they want to go to the big schools and have all the fly gear and fly charters and do all this different stuff. And as a parent, you want to situate. You want your kid to go to the best situation to go to the next level. So it's hard to ask the players now. If you get the smart people, the people with money, the people with resources, and you pouring into these HBCUs, that's going to make it. Play on an even competitive level, you're going to have a lot more black players go to these institutions. So I think a lot of people look at the players, but I look at maybe because I was in the locker room with a lot of these guys and I know what those guys, what we focus on at that point. And it's a lot more people who are more in the trenches, more educated on these things, have more resources at their disposal that can really create that change. And I think the players are kind of like, that. we're going to go and play in the best situation we can go and play. Now, unless you can unify, but it's hard to get 1,696 guys on the same page. That's a lot of different situations, a lot of different miles to feed and things. So uh it is some responsibility on players, but I just hope that that, you know, maybe it, it just puts a light on, okay, the players that these – the situations that these indiv- individuals are in. And, um, you know, ultimately you got to make some sacrifices to get some change for the group. Uh, But individually, man, it's going to be tough if we're looking for change uh, from that player uh, level.
2: I think what you said there is the key, though, and and this is historically, whether it relates to civil rights or anything else, um, change requires sacrifice. And so folks have to ask them how much are they willing to sacrifice? I'll never forget during the labor negotiation back in 2011, um, I was out with uh, a starting quarterback, MVP caliber quarterback and was working on a, a, a piece. And um, I remember asking him, how come I don't see more quarterbacks involved in these labor negotiations? I said, because you guys have power, you know, you mm-hmm. quarterbacks, you're the face of the league. And I'll never forget this, we're, and we were talking privately, so I won't say his name or anything, but he told me, he said, Jim, you gotta understand, we have business relationships with these owners after we're done playing. And a lot of guys aren't gonna jeopardize that. And I was like, wow you know so and I, and I I didn't want to judge but I'm saying you know so it's all about you you yeah. know as opposed to the collective and the owners understand that and and that's the danger as you say you yep. know getting 1600 guys on the same page this is and I and I say this respectfully so if the NFL is listening you know they can't come back and say I said something bad <laughs> but this is NFL owners are diabolical geniuses from the standpoint they have created a business model where they bring in um, labor. And before that labor realizes that this is a business and not a game, that labor is out of the league. Time was, is up. Yeah. We're talking about an average career span, let's just say four years. Mm-hmm. So, so they just keep turning it over and, That's one of the reasons I believe that players will never come together in total is because of the the short length of of the career spans. Um, And also because by the time that they realize that this is a business, they're out of the league. So I agree with both of you, you know, especially Antoine saying the bigger name guys are the ones who have to give cover to the quote unquote rank and file. And if those guys aren't willing to do it, it's not going to matter. So. Anyway, that's, that's
3: my so they, they, yeah. They know even in them thirty. You know, you got thirty billionaires together. Like, it's easy for them to be unified, and they could hate each other's guts. But they know when they sit around at a round table, we're like, hey, we, Yeah, we we got the system, and this is a place that is working, and that, and that's why when it was, and it's it's so discouraging, man. I was on those calls back in seventeen, and literally been on. Hey, and I'm like. I remember I was on a call with a bunch of the representatives from the different teams, the player reps. And I just, I said, Hey, this is the point we got them. This is the first time that I can remember where we literally, you know, at the table because they were trying, they were like sweating, like, Hey man, I'm losing sponsorships on my, on my hockey team and on this and on that, because of what's going on with the protests and whatnot. So they were scrambling and I was like, all right, this is a, 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 situation where we do we have a voice and we have some power here and guys can collectively come together and this I wanted to say it was like a Wednesday maybe a Thursday I said if we even threaten to and this is the first time that we had ever I had ever been on a conference call with 20 guys 25 different guys with different teams if we even threaten to all right we're not gonna play this week or we're not gonna practice this Friday I said bro if we have a a list of demands like those demands are gonna be met they not they don't want to miss football and one of the guys, one of the biggest guys that was involved in this whole thing, was like, Hey, nah, that, that's not what I'm on. I'm not, we we try to get the football. Like, and I'm like, I I, I was I was dumb with the conversation at that point. I'm like, what are we even all talking about if we are not willing to at least put on the front like we're not gonna play football for a week? Right. And so it, it 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 definitely gets discouraging. But um, I mean, the more we talk about it, uh, the more, like you said understanding the business side of understanding how important uh, we are it, it being that cog in the machine that makes the thing go and it's unified. It's tough to do, but somehow, some way it can happen. And I'm hopeful that it does, but uh, that, that's kind of a, a big reason of the situation that um, that we're in. But I know we've been going for a while. I got to, I want to ask you some, some things about, you know, your your career uh, yeah. personally, while we got you here. Um, we talked about your time in San Diego. And one of my favorite players coming up, I actually live in San Diego. I was a first player. I was born in Germany, Army brat, and then moved to San Diego, uh living on a naval base out there. And one of my favorite players, the younger, was Junior Seau. And I know you wrote a book about uh about Junior Seau. I had a chance to actually play with him for one year too in New England. What were some of your favorite uh favorite moments, stories or covering the charges and, and say out there?
2: Yeah, you can't see it right now. In the background, there's a there's a framed jersey from Junior that's signed. It's actually a game worn jersey from his time with Miami when he played the Chargers for the first time after he got traded the year after he got traded from San Diego, mm-hmm. and I never forget he left that for me, and um, and so I framed it and whatnot and have it in my room here just as a reminder. Let me say this to you first about Junior. Um, I literally am not in this position today without him and people need to understand the impact that he had. And this is how he touched so many people that obviously he made everyone feel special. He had that type of personality, but he would seek to help you in any way he could. So I had never been an NFL reporter before i had covered high schools, a little bit of minor league hockey, and one year of the NBA when the San Diego Union-Tribune said, hey, we want you to cover the Chargers. So this is the offseason. Very first day I walk in the locker room. At that time, the Chargers um, practice facility was out at the old Qualcomm Stadium. I walk in the locker room in the offseason. There are only two players in there. And it's Junior and one other player who I don't even remember. And They're on the far side of the locker room. And he's walking towards the training room. He turns around and he sees me. And he says, um, calls me over. And the first thing that was so weird is he introduces himself as if I don't know who he is. No. You know? And he says, oh, you're the new guy. And I'm like, yeah, and then just myself. So we talked for a minute. He said, look, take my number. And he said, if you need anything, you call me. And I'm like, I had heard some of the stories about at times he could be kind of difficult with the media and whatnot. So I'm thinking, OK, this dude's set me up for something. And so I take the number and I said, well, I'm not going to call it right away, whatever. But I'm curious in my mind, is this legit? So I wait a couple of weeks and there was something minor that happened or whatever. And so I called the number and like I'm expecting to get Domino's pizza or something. Uh-huh. And um, and it's his voicemail. And I leave a message and shortly after he calls me back. So I'm like, this dude is genuine. The funny thing is, so we developed a relationship over the years. And the funny thing is that people always thought he was feeding me information. Mm -hmm. Anyone who knows Junior knows he was so protective of the team that he was never going to do anything to damage the team. What he did for me is he helped me understand the culture of a locker room. He helped me understand the culture of the NFL from a player's perspective. And I'll give you an example. So one year early in my career covering the NFL – um, the Chargers go out and they sign um, Ryan McNeil, cornerback, to a big contract. And we get to training camp and Ryan McNeil looks awful. <laughs> yeah. No, and when I say awful, man, I mean awful. Yeah. So I'm getting ready thinking, okay, I'm gonna have to write a story here about how they just wasted a bunch of money on this dude who can't play. So Junior's the leader of the team, the defense, obviously. So I go to him and I said, hey, man, what's going on with this dude? You know, it's supposed to be like your marquee signing. And Junior says to me, look, here's what you need to understand about veteran players. Veteran players use training camp to work on their weaknesses, not their strengths. And he said, so you're not going to always look as good as you would in a game. And so I kind of tucked that away. I'm like, all right. And I didn't write anything. Long story short, we get to the end of the season. Ryan McNeil leads the NFL in interceptions that year. Mm -hmm. He had 10. And so imagine how foolish I would look if I had written that story. (laughs) But that was Junior helping me to understand, you know, a player's mindset and and what they go through in terms of uh, their preparation, their approach, all these sorts of things. So that's what he did for me is that by helping me understand the culture of a locker room and the mentality of a player and whatnot – it helped me better foster relationships with players in terms of that. I'm not coming at them as some armchair quarterback saying, I know more than you do, you know, and, and my attitude was really help me learn, Mm -hmm. help me learn, help me understand so that I can better represent you when I write about it. And, and, and it encompasses, you know, your viewpoint and what you're going through and all that kind of stuff, the background stuff. So junior was that guy for me. and, over the years, and we had our we had our moments too. Um, I'll tell you a quick story where there was one year he gets um, uh, a contract extension, and it makes him the highest paid defensive player in the NFL. Well, a few weeks later, they announce um, a new TV deal or whatever, and the salary cap spikes, takes a mm-hmm. jump. So Junior is thinking, and this is not what he has said to me. This is piecing everything together that hey, they pulled a fast one on me. They signed me to this extension before the, the cap jumped, and I could have gotten more money than what I got. So the Chargers have a, a voluntary uh, mini camp the following um, week or two. Junior doesn't show up. It's the first time he has ever missed no. uh, a mini camp, voluntary or mandatory, whatever. So the general manager at the time and the head coach start going off. This is Junior being selfish, yada, 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 yada. And I'm like, whoa, they have never talked about Junior like this before. This is like, you know, the face of the franchise, the local boy, all that stuff. Everyone's always careful what they say. They might say it privately, but never publicly. But here they mm-hmm. are, they going after him. I called Junior's cell phone. I called his house phone. I called his top assistant. All these people, nobody returned a call. So now put yourself in my shoes as a writer. What do you do? You got the GM and the head coach saying these things about him. And on the other side, you got a player and his reps, none of whom are returning calls. What do you do as a reporter? Well, you got to report what they said. So I do. The next time I see Junior is at training camp. And as I come walking up to him, he's in a golf cart with Kurt Govea. Mm -hmm. And I swear my hand to God, it is the only time in my professional career where I ever felt threatened and scared. And he (laughs) looked at me and he said hard copy get the fuck out of here and for those who don't know hard copy was that show back in the day that was you know sensational headlines and all that type yeah
3: of stuff.
2: he's like hard copy get the fuck out of here he did not talk to me again until like thanksgiving it was and i remember specifically because i had heard that he had it changed within the the locker room for different people and um he was more at peace and calm and all these sorts of things. But again, he wasn't talking to me. So around Thanksgiving, I put in a request to interview him. He grants me the interview. And then he just bears his soul about some things where I'm like, holy shit, I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we get to the off season. This is the thing I respect the most about Junior. He always tried to learn from situations, even from his mistakes or what people might perceive to be his mistakes. He calls all the writers out to his restaurant that offseason. And he basically apologizes. And then he and I had a private conversation where I said to him, Junior, I can't read minds. And I said, all I ask is that you put yourself in my shoes in those situations. I came to you to try and get your side of this story. And nobody, not you, not your rep, not anyone Mm -hmm. would speak to give your side of this story. I said, so what would you do in my shoes? And he understood it. The next time some controversial things came up, it was never a problem getting him to at least understand his side of the story, including when he was traded. So, those are the things I remember about Junior is just how giving he was, and 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 when he first had that um, retirement press conference with the Chargers, and then it was like a week later signed with New England. Um, the day of that press conference, he said, "Come down to the restaurant. I'm gonna have some family and friends, and we're just gonna chill for a minute." So I said, "Okay." We're literally sitting at a table. It's me, um, his physical therapist, um, like the executor of his foundation, various people. It's like maybe six to eight of us. And literally, we went around that table, made him so uncomfortable, saying to him what he meant to us in terms of helping our careers and how none of us are where we were at that time without him Mm -hmm. and what he did for us. And I'll never forget that moment man and 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 that's just who he was man he was he was yeah. that dude where even now we're coming up on in May it'll be ten years since he took his life and and I still have people today who say to me, "Man, I miss him, you know yeah, and that's how we feel that's that's who he was.
3: I had to ask, had to ask you about, about him and, and you guys' relationship before you know before we got out. Cause I was around, I'm one of those people. I was around him for a short period of time, especially as a young. And he was one of those guys. I was like Tom Brady, Randy Moss, and if me like Seao in that locker. I'm like, man, this is a guy, you know, growing up, this was like a god on that football field on the defensive side of it, and just how he <laughs> treated people. You know, he yeah. was always so cool. He would be one of the first guys in there, just playing his ukulele. You know, in the cuts where didn't know anybody's name. Yeah, I mean, didn't did tell any. Everybody was buddy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. buddy. Hey, buddy. It was playing with him on the field. Hey, he's gonna switch plays. He's gonna do what the hell he want out there. So, um, I had to ask you about Junior before we let you go. Yeah, nah. I know well, you gotta get out of here.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you. I gotta, I gotta run. Here. I, I gotta take the wife to a doctor's appointment. <laughs> She's texting me now, <laughs> saying I'm fifteen minutes late. So, nah, <laughs> nah. Definitely.
1: Definitely appreciate you, man. We want to get you back on here, man, because there's some sure. other things we want to d- definitely touch on. But as always, yeah, man, um, appreciate you and, and as uh, you know, appreciate all the work that you do, man.
2: Um, no, no, I, man. This t- believe me, this is I'm humbled to be on the show. You, you, guys, can get me anytime you need me. I love what you guys are doing. You know, AB, I've known you for forever, man. So you know how yeah. I feel about you, and respect and appreciate you. And Darius, you doing it with him. So um, thank you for having me. And I look forward Appreciate to coming you. back, man. Yes, sir. Appreciate Thanks you bro. for joining us. All right, fellas. All right. I gotta run here. <laughs>
3: I'm
2: take care. Y'all gonna get me in trouble here. All right, <laughs> All right fellas. Be well. All
3: right. All, right. All, right. All,
1: right. All right. you too. Man, that was uh that was a good one, man. I got Jim Trotter. Um, again, man, man of many titles. Um dope stores of Jean Seyao. Um, definitely, man, that's doing doing it the right way in the um yep. in the writing space in the report space man so again thank you jim for uh, for stopping by and joining us absolutely there Go you
3: ahead. have it man another episode the man the man Pod, the great jim trotter joined us another hu alumni uh yes, it was man. great talking to him man definitely gonna have to have him back on the show Appreciate y'all tapping, with, tapping in with us. You already know the vibes. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff, man. We out of here.
1: Peace. Yeah, yeah, the one
0: yeah. Man to man. Yeah, we talking. Man to man. They can't guard me. Man to man. They don't wanna see us, man to man They don't know how to beat us, man to man In me, that's why I want it so bad Must be the hustler in me that keep my foot on the gas When you got it from nothing, then hard times ain't so bad Just know I'm coming for everything that they said I couldn't have I put my life inside it, yeah, I kept it silent Yeah, I played the field, that's how I feel about it We put numbers on the board, we always up the score Yeah, we stuck to the planet, never ran Now they can't man, see a man Yeah, we talking, man, to oh man. They can't guard me Man to man They don't wanna see us Man to man They don't know how to beat us Man to man